0: Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 36th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the Alash Orda's struggle for autonomy in 1919. <laughs> First, it's time for our Making History segment. First, I want to say happy holidays. I know Diwali was November 4th and Hanukkah started on 28th, November 28th. So happy Hanukkah, happy Diwali. Um, so happy holidays. Are you vaccinated? Have you gotten your booster yet? Is your family vaccinated, including your children? Are your friends vaccinated? If your answer is no to any of these questions, then stop whatever you're doing right now and get vaccinated. South Africa just discovered did not create, did did not originate, but discovered a new variant that may be worse than Delta. And I know you're going to visit your families during the holidays. No one is blaming you, but I am asking you to protect yourself and your families by getting vaccinated, getting the booster if you qualify, wear your mask, and practice social distancing lost amongst the swirl of the infrastructure bill slash the Build Back Better bill and the holidays is a report by the Washington Post revealing the true horrors of ICE and the police partnership. Um, If you've been following this partnership, nothing is really new, but it does confirm uh, these three main takeaways. One, the police are willing to falsely arrest and forcefully disappear people for ICE. ICE and the police purposely terrorize communities of color, jeopardizing the lives of everyone in that community. And this predatory, racist, fascist behavior is approved by President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas. Um, If they didn't approve of this behavior, they would have done something about it by now. President Biden made a campaign promise that he was going to cancel all ICE contracts and he was going to fix our broken immigration system. He's done none of those things. In fact, he's given more money to ICE. He has continued to use Trump's racist policies um, to deport people. And he's made no indication that that's going to change. Neverland and their partners will be marching on, on Washington, D.C. on December 6th, and they're asking for us to join them, If we can't join them to at least spread the word. Um, I'll post a link with more information about the march in the description, and I'll also post a link to the Washington Post article um, in the description for, so you can read for yourselves. Finally, it is the holiday season, and it is the time of giving. Two things here. So first, if you're looking for gift ideas, a little small shout out, we made a list of 15 books about Central Asia for the special history lover or book lover in your life. Two, not only is it a time that you have your friends and families, it's time to make donations to um, organizations that mean a lot to you and also the people in need. So we have two organizations very close to our hearts that are, um, have just launched fundraisers. Um, and I'm asking you to make a donation if you can, if you can, not at least help spread the word. The first fundraiser is the Chicago Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression. They've just launched a GoFundMe. They need to raise $10,000 in order to support their efforts to implement the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance, the ECPS, and to hold CPD, which is the Chicago Police Department, accountable. ECPS is a stepping stone towards community control over the police, but it's not the end goal. With this money, Chicago Alliance can ensure that ECPS is implemented in a way to truly dismantle police power while also continuing the fight for total civilian control over the police, who are supposed to be answerable to the immunities they protect anyway. And from there, we'll be one step closer to defunding the police and then using that money to support social services and programs that will address things such as homelessness, untreated addiction and mental illness, and poverty. We want to dismantle the police because we don't believe in criminalizing behavior or situations, Instead, we believe in uplifting people and giving them the tools to thrive, no matter who or where they're from. So please donate to Chicago Alliance's GoFundMe if you can, and help help us fight for a society that cares for its people instead of criminalizing them. Uh, the second fundraiser is Never Agains fundraiser. They're trying to um, raise fifteen thousand dollars to abolish ICE and ensure that President Biden keeps his campaign promise, as we mentioned earlier. When he ran for President uh, Biden, President Biden promised to end Trump-era oppressive immigration measures, cancel ICE contracts, and reform our immigration system. He's broken each and every one of those promises, and so Never Again wants to hold him accountable. Never Again is a great organization that has planned a number of direct actions throughout the year, including fidgeting outside Secretary Mayorkas's house, and they're planning a huge march on December 6th in D.C., which we've mentioned before. They want to ramp up their actions, though, and to do that, they need our help. So I'll post the link to the fundraiser for both Chicago Alliance and Never Again. Please, if you can donate, do so. Every bit counts or every bit helps. But if you can't, can you just please help spread the word? And then finally, uh, last week, Thanksgiving was celebrated in, in the United States, which means it's a perfect time to donate to Indigenous peoples. Um, we provide a number of links to Twitter threads listing several Indigenous peoples in need. Again, if you can make a donation, please do so. And if you can't, please help spread the word. And now it's time to check in with the Alash Orda. So last time we were with the Alash Orda, they were in Siberia fighting alongside the white Siberian forces against the Bolsheviks. Supporters of Admiral Kolchak had launched a coup and named him Supreme Commander of all white forces. Kolchak dismantled all governments, including the Alash Orda, and he was preparing for a new offensive. This may have not been such a problem for the Alash Orda if they hadn't burnt their bridges with the Bolsheviks in early 1918, because right now they can't turn to the Bolsheviks, nor do they want to at this point, but they're kind of stuck with the white army or the white movement that doesn't respect their claims to autonomy. What are they fighting for? I think is the question here and the question that they have to um, grapple with. It's now 1919, and Kolchak is planning a new offensive. Part one, the unraveling of Kolchak. When Kolchak took over, his staff, he and his staff were optimistic that they would easily defeat the Bolsheviks, and at first it looked like they were right. Kolchak launched his spring offensive in March 1919 and despite not properly coordinating his offensive with Denikin's forces in the south he enjoyed considerable success. His battle plan was to launch an assault along his entire front with forces concentrated on the center through Ufa toward the middle of the Volga with a direct route to the Mo- to Moscow. His forces consisted of three armies: Jaj's Siberian Army of 45,000 men plus the Siberian flotilla, General Tonzin's Western Army of 42,000 men and Dutov's Orenburg and Ural forces, consisting of 20,000 Cossacks and Kazats, Kolchak was facing the 2nd, 5th, 1st, and 4th armies, consisting of 120,000 men, plus the Volga, military flotilla. Additionally, the Red Armies were able to receive reinforcements and supplies easier and faster than the White Armies. Kolchak's opening offensive pushed the Red Armies to the Volga and Orenburg, but ran into supply and communication issues with the Sprain Thaw, which turned everything into mud. Additionally, their forces were spread across 180,000 square mile territory that they now had to manage. The Red Armies received reinforcements in April and launched a new offensive in May. General Mikhail Frenza, who was very important and we'll talk a lot about later in the series, took advantage, advantage of the White Overreach and attacked the Western Army, pushing it back to Ufa and exposing the si- Siberian Army's flank. Frenza pushed his advantage, and by, Col- and by July, Kolchak's forces had been pushed beyond their point of departure. There are kind of a number of reasons why this happened, and a lot of them are beyond the scope of this podcast. Trotsky was working his ass off to um, reinvent the Red Army, and a lot of his efforts started paying off in 1919. He's able to uh, supply the Red Armies faster. He was able to reinforce them faster. He was able to recruit faster and better than the White Armies. And as the Red Armies are marching into Siberia, and as they're marching into the steppes, anyone who is alienated by the White Army, right, which at this point is a lot of people, went over to the Red Army's side. And the Red Army had to play this balance of being ideologically pure, but also welcoming these new recruits or welcoming these indigenous actors who would give the Bolsheviks a legitimacy that the whites didn't have anymore, if they ever had it. Because you have to remember, Bolsheviks have, the, have um, made an argument that they are anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism. They are pro-workers, pro-indigenous peoples, pro-liberation. And so what do the white armies have to offer? Well, they're offering the return to monarchism. They're returning to the old ways of Tsarist Russia. Um, as we see with Tolchat's actions, he dismantles the governments in Siberia. And it affects the Alash Order, and that's who we're interested in this episode, but it also affected the Siberian governments that we talked about in our last episode about the Alash Order. The other reason is that Kolchat's army wasn't in the best of shape, and coordination was really, really poor. So the intrigue going on within Kolchak's staff is beyond this podcast, but the defeats were made worse by a revolving door of generals and staff members, plus mass desertion within the ranks. Kolchak reorganized his army in midsummer to try and stem off these issues, and then he tried to engulf the Red Army in a pincer move, but it failed because of poor coordination. This defeat was the final nail in the coffin for the Allies, who were convinced that Kolchak was a lost cause. Despite this, Kolchak launched another failed offensive in spring, um, but by November, he lost his headquarters in Amst and was completely cut off from the Earls the and the Orenburg. Hundreds of men and generals fled, some heading towards the Caspian and then Persia, and others fleeing towards Semerechi and Xinjiang. Those who remained of Tolchak undertook the Great Siberian Ice March heading towards Chita to unite with the Far Eastern White Army led by Ottoman Semenov. Semenov was known to be a tyrant and was supported by the Japanese. Many disapproved of Semenov, and they went into Manchuria, which is a completely different story that we may get to at some point. They used the Trans-Siberian Railroad as a guide, but were sometimes denied the use of the Railroad Czechoslovak Legion. Again, this march is beyond this podcast, but as one can imagine, it was a nightmare for anyone who was involved, because they had to deal with Siberian winter, lack of supplies, and they were being chased by the Red Forces and a number of insurgencies. Um, They also had to cross the frozen lake Baikal in sub-zero temperatures. Not fun. And uh, not a fun fact, but the leader of the expedition actually caught frostbite and died during the march. So, not great. Uh, But the survivors got medals honoring that they uh, went on the march and lived, whatever that's worth. Kolchak himself stepped down from command on January 4th, 1920, giving command of South Russia to General Denikin and command of the Far East to Ottoman Semenov. He didn't actually go on the ice march. He was promised safe passage to the British military mission in Erkust, but was betrayed to the Bolsheviks by the Czech Legion. He was executed by a Cheka firing squad on the morning of February 7th, 1920, and was dumped into the frozen Angara River. Part 2. Up a Creek without a Paddle. So where did all of this leave the Alash Orda? Well, it's not great. Um, they were basically up a creek without a paddle. Back in 1918, when Tolchak dismantled their government, there was a conversation within the Alash order about what to do next. Originally, they rejected the Bolshevik overtures in 1918 because the Bolsheviks refused to recognize Alash autonomy. And yet here they were, not even a year later, supporting an ally that just dissolved their own government. Some, like Bakhtaryshnov, traveled to Moscow to meet with Lenin, and he joined the Kirchik Military Revolutionary Committee, with Stalin writing, quote, I did not and do not consider him a revolutionary communist or a sympathizer. Nevertheless, his presence in the revolutionary committee is necessary. Unlike others, like Bokihanov, stuck with the White Army, writing in February 1919, expressing a desire of the Kirzid together with the valiant Siberian troops to wage battle with the Bolsheviks from whom the Kirzid population suffered greatly, especially in Semarechi's oblast being completely destroyed by them. He argued that the Khazats were completely reliable— hardy material for the army unsusceptible to the bolshevik infection he went ahead and formed cavalry units of kazakh soldiers similar to the cossacks who answered to russian and kazakh cadres we must pause here and acknowledge that the red army were doing the exact same thing they were recruiting heavily from the steppes Cossacks, both people who were former alash Orda members or maybe were alash Order members and also just like normal general Cossacks. and we'll talk more about those recruitment efforts in a later episode Buhitanov's soldiers would take part in all of Kolchat's offensives in the Orals, and were even praised for their efforts. One white officer writing, Dressed in our uniforms of an orderly line of .375 caliber rifles thrown over their shoulder, in proper files they moved as if on parade, and gave the impression of a genuine dashing cavalry. The Cossack units were involved with some of the few victories the white army experienced during the summer, such as the taking of the small Cherkasko garrison in August, but they could not stem the red tide. Part 3, Negotiating with the Enemy While Alesh Order members like Bukihanov decided to stick with the White, what we see towards the end of 1919, particularly in the end of October and early November, we see Tazet forces in the Urals um, reaching out to the fir- Red First Army, um, offering their services against the White Army. The Bolsheviks sensed an opportunity since the soldiers themselves had, no, had quote, no desire to bear the material and personal sacrifices, either for White generals or for the Alish Order leaders. From November 1919 onward, the Alash Orda army units in the Urals pursued a policy that, quote, consisted on the one hand of formal agreements on paper with the Cossacks, and on the other in showing them as much passive resistance as was feasible. They offered to supply information and to support offensive against the White Army. So we kind of have this odd situation where Alash Orda... Are still supportive of the white movement, but you have military units that they've recruited starting to reach out to the Red Army, and I think this reflects the uh, mass desertion that undermined a lot of what Tolchak was trying to do. The Red Army has decided what to do with these with these people. On the one hand, um, these are enemies of war; um, they are quote unquote, you know, like class traitors. They're not communists for sure, and they're fighting with the White Army, which right now is one of their one of the Bolshevik's biggest enemies. And yet, they're willing to uh, betray those the white army, they're willing to work with the communists. So what, how, do, how should they respond? I think to understand their decision, we kind of have to look at how they were handling other indigenous actors. So if we think back to um, last week's episode, actually, or not last week, but last episode, which was about Turkestan and communism, we see this acknowledgement that the only way that the, the Bolsheviks were able to retain Turkestan and the steppe within a communist sphere is by working with indigenous actors. And so you have this combination of, we don't want to sully ourselves with non-communist ideas, but we also want to stop the violence that has been happening, particularly in the Turkestan area and in the steppe, because the violence isn't helping. And so um, in Turkestan, they brought in the indigenous actors into the governmental apparatuses that they were trying to build. In the steppe, what we see is the army taking a bit of a more direct approach. So the army still wants to avoid violence, but they want to neutralize all threats in the region, including indigenous ones. The instructions that the First Army receives is, quote, The complete and total surrender of all weapons and other military property ought to be categorically demanded, and in the event of the surrender must be immediately directed to the Dzerzhyn station for sub- subsequent headquarters turnover. Soviets then demanded that the Alish Order march their forces to the city of Yule and surrender there. The Alish Order refused since that march would leave their forces exposed to white retaliation. They wrote back, The Ural Front is not yet liquidated, and dozens of Kirzik Volosts remain in the region of deployment of the Cossack troops. The Cossacks, embittered by our coming out on the side of Soviet power, have already begun to butcher our peaceful population. In addition to the southern Volosts remaining within the confines of the deployment of Cossack units, as we have today received reliable information— Individual Cossack detachments are lurking in the rear among us, perpetrating indescribable violence. We would consider it a crime to leave the population to the mercy of fate at such a moment and to set out with military units to Yule. We began and will continue the struggle against the Cossacks right on up until our oblast is finally cleansed of them. Upon finishing this operation, we can travel anywhere at all. We urgently ask you to take all subsequent measures toward the most rapid liquidation of the Ural Front. We likewise ask that the trophies acquired exclusively by the labors of our units be placed at the disposal of the Kyrgyz Revolutionary Committee of Orenburg as items necessary for the red units formed. So we're jumping ahead a little bit because this is November 1919. But at this point, Mikhail Fruenza, who we met earlier in this episode, is basically in charge of the Turkestan and Steppe region. And so we'll get into how that happened in our next episode. But he's basically guiding this effort to turn Turkestan towards communism. And so he leaves the negotiations in the hand of the First Army, uh, but he provides a general program on how the surrender should be handled. And so, quote, In view of the intention expressed by the Western sections of the Kirzak government, quote-unquote, Alash Orda, to surrender to the mercy and will of the Soviet government, with all stocks of weapons and military supplies, I order, first, the Revolutionary Council of the First or Fourth Army is to take on the leadership of the negotiations, depending on the location of detachments of Alash Orda and their delegates. Second, in the process of negotiations are to be laid, one, the decree of the Council of People's Commissars on the Ural Cossacks of 7 December, two, order of the Turkestan Front to the Ural Cossacks of 9 December, and the order of the Turkestan Front to the Orenburg Cossacks. Third, negotiations are not to be dragged out, having appointed the shortest possible period for the surrender. Fourth, the Dizits upon disarmament are to be deployed into the nearest army rear, subject to the political processing and subsequently used in the capacity of reinforcements for troops active in the region of the Tirzit steps, initially only in detachments of auxiliary designation. Fifth, members of the government and command team are to de- be deployed in Euros or Orenburg environs to isolate communication with the Tirzit Step. Sixth, the right is to be given to a left delegation composed of no more than five prison persons for a journey to staff headquarters and subsequently to Moscow. Seventh, observance of the precise fulfillment of all of our terms of surrender. So basically, what Ferenza is saying is that the 1st 4th Army will be responsible for negotiations, depending on where the detachments of the Alash Order are. They're not really negotiations, right? They're not, they're not supposed to be quote-unquote dragged out. They're supposed to be short and to the point. Once the Alish order surrender, they're not going to be treated as equals. They're not political partners. They're prisoners of war. So they're going to be disarmed, they're going to be processed, and then they're going to be reworked into the army as auxiliaries or as reinforcements. Because Ferenzo is still fighting a war at this point, even though Kolchak is gone, you still got Dendekin in the south, and you have the Basmachi, and we've still got the emirs out there. So he needs troops. After he sends this general outline of how the surrender should be handled, Ferenzo reported to Lenin, quote, The military significance of Alish Orda is insignificant, but politically and economically, their surrender is important, securing for us the entire steppe region to the shores of the Caspian. So he doesn't consider them to be useful militarily, except maybe as cannon fodder, but he does recognize that he needs to crush this independent indigenous movement that isn't tied to communism. Right? Because again, we want to stress that Alish Orda is just one of the many groups that are, are in the region. And a lot of people have started to come over to the Bolshevik side because the whites are losing, and because um the Bolsheviks offer the best opportunity for indigenous actors at this point. So the Alge Order received Frenz's, you know, directive, and uh, they reject his demands. They write back, quote, We believe that friends should meet one another with a salute and not the sombre image of the wheat bowing his head before the strong one. True democrats do not and should not allow and permit themselves to humiliate others. If you nurse distrust among us, we will prove to you the sincerity of our declaration and our actions, participating together with you in active struggle with the common enemies, the Cossacks. For our population, the quickest possible expulsion of the Cossacks from the Kyrgyz territories is of unquestionable and pressing interest, because every extra day that they stay here causes the population incredible harm. <laughs> What's basically happening here? Because you you might be wondering, what, you know, what way do the Alash are, or do have to stand on? What hand do they have, right? And the answer is that their position's not great. But they are determined to negotiate with the Bolsheviks as political equals. And I think they hold on to this because if they do acknowledge that they are just prisoners of war, they lose any chance they have to implement their reforms. Um, and I think it's also just a question of justifying the sacrifices that have been made until this point, right? If the um, Bolsheviks are truly determined to support indigenous efforts and are truly determined to support anti-colonial and anti-imperialist efforts then the alash order should take advantage of that and um use the bolsheviks to create a step that's free of russian interference right is free of imperial interference and free of the the ulama interference right which is a, i mean the kazaks don't have as much of a of a beef with the ulama as the jadids in turkestan do but it's still it's still in the back of their minds right and so they're trying to engage with that part of the Bolsheviks. They're trying to explain, like, why the Bolsheviks should engage with them, right? They're like, we have soldiers. We fought for the whites. We've, you know, you fought us when we fought for the whites. We're willing to do that for you. Um, You just need to trust us. You need to engage with us as we want to be engaged with. Forenza, unfortunately, wasn't having any of that. But he wrote back to the First Army, quote, First, it is permitted, in conformity with the situation, not to insist on the immediate directing of all members of the Alash Order government and of command to Orenburg, having taken the several of the most authoritative persons only for communications and as hostages. Second, it is permitted to use immediately armed units of Alash Order, having transformed them at your discretion and having secured hostages in the event of treachery. Third, use the existing situation for the quickest possible fulfillment of this task of taking control of the oil fields region and cutting off paths of retreat to the east for the foe's Ural Army units. Fourth, impose as a duty on the former Kirzet government for the immediate formation in the region of Ural foodstuff space of transport necessary for the movement of units. While the military units were trying to feel the First Army out and feel Forenza out, you still have the political center, of the Alish Orda, in semipolitansk. So you have people like Bukhanov in Semipolitansk. And what they are realizing is that they are cut off in Kolchak at this point, because it is like late November. And that the other political parties in the step are organizing and considering allying with the Bolsheviks. And so there is a very strong pro Bolshevik sentiment that is building. And this kind of this unleashes on December first when the local organizations lead a local uprising. Which Ferenza then takes advantage of to take semi so, it's the 1st of December, Semipolitans has fallen, the Al's order still don't have um, an agreement, or a formal agreement with the Bolsheviks. What are they going to do? So, what they decide to do on December 21st is to publish an official decree which says, quote, In view of the fact that the rights of the peoples of Russia are most fully ensured by Soviet power, that the well-known declaration of the rights of peoples issued by the Council of People's Commissars has been implemented with respect to many of the peoples of Soviet Russia, and has been confirmed once again during the entry of Soviet troops onto the territory of Siberia in the decoration of the chairman of the Central Committee, the Council of People's Commissars, the Oblast Committee of the Alash Order, resolves, wa- resolves to support Soviet power with all means and efforts, ba- bearing freedom, equality, brotherhood, and light into all the unfortunate dark corners of many-language Russia, to welcome the appearance on Alash territory— The Tirzid autonomy of Soviet troops as liberators from the tyranny of the reaction monarchistic dictatorship. By the end of December, the Bolsheviks informed the Alash Order that their proposal was rejected and that, We do not know and do not recognize any Alash Order government whatsoever and do not enter into any treaty agreements with them as such. The government is to be dissolved. The decree on amnesty remains in full force. The Alash Order held on to hope that by demonstrating their value as military allies, they could remain political equals. So, on December 27th, the Alish Order launched an attack against Kizil Kuda, capturing it and the white staff stationed there. The Cossacks tried to liberate the town, but were repulsed. The Alish Order took prisoner 500 Cossacks and officers, one artillery piece, 15 machine guns, and many rifles. The Alish Order sent word of their victory to the Bolsheviks on January 5th, 1920, claiming that, quote, in such a manner, having participated actively in the struggle with the enemies of Soviet power, it only made sense to merge their forces. For, quote, in one cry, there cannot be two masters. The problem was the Bolsheviks didn't know what to do with the Alash Orda. On the one hand, they were local intelligentsia who could be put to good use in furthering the Bolshevik cause, but on the other hand, they were a nationalistic political movement that created its own government, rebuffed the Bolsheviks, and allied themselves with the white movement. In January, the Alash Orda and Bolsheviks met and agreed that until an all-adhered council to be convened to determine the future of the Kazakh people, the government of the steppe would fall to the Revolutionary Military Committee which included members of the al Order, such as Vatyrsinov, and the military mo- units would, mo- would merge with the Red Army. On January 21st, this agreement was issued in a formal de- declaration, quote, Only one resolution is possible until the All-Kyrgyz Council to be convened this June and being the only body that can elect a lawful Soviet government of all Kyr- Kyrgyzia the tirzid oblof shall be administered by a military revolutionary committee appointed by the Council of People's Commissars of the RSFSR, which is basically just the Soviet Union. For this reason, a merger of Alesh Orda with the Revolutionary Committee is possible only when the Council of People's Commissars includes certain Alesh Orda members in the composition of the Military Revolutionary Committee of Kyrgyzia. And yet, the Military Revolutionary Committee decided not to appoint Alash Orda members to the committee because of their backgrounds and distrust and dislike from other Soviet Kazaks. Instead, a commission was created to deal with property and trophies, and by the summer of 1920, the arms, property, and units of the Alish Orda were handed over to the Kirzid Military Revolutionary Committee and Army. In February 1920, they arrested several Alash Orda members, sparking an outcry from the Kirzid Revolutionary Committee, 800,000 people of the Tazet Steppe, and the chair of the Bastir Military Revolutionary Committee, Z. Volodov, who went all the way to Lenin and Stalin, begging them to issue a clear degree on the fates of the Alash Orda. On March 9, 1920, the Kyrgyzad Military Revolutionary Committee issued the following statement, quote, order, calling itself a government, and the Zemstov institutions, subordinated to it, shall be liquidated as not being prescribed by the Constitution of the RSFSR. All laws, instructions, and orders issued during its existence shall be considered invalid. All property, currency, arms, military munitions, and equipment shall be subject to transfer to the corresponding commissariats and departments of the cry, Oblast, and Oozed Revolutionary Committees by ownership. All employees shall fall under disposition of the corresponding commissariats and immobilized by their specialization and shall be maintained on special account of the commissariat of internal affairs. By the end of March, former members of the Alish Order were no longer persecuted, but except for a handful of men, such as Batyrsinov, they could not participate in government work. Ferenzo defeated the white army in March and rehabilitated the Kazets and Cossacks who once fought for the whites. In the late spring of 1920, the restrictions against former Alish Order members were lifted, and some were allowed to work in different governmental bodies. The Alash Order started 1919 allied with a monarchist movement that refused to acknowledge their right to autonomous government. They started 1920 with their government disbanded and all power in the hands of the Bolsheviks, and Bolshevik-approved allies. And yet they held out hope that they could work with the Bolsheviks to enact their reforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.samswarmroom.com, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Please subscribe and leave a review, and join our Patreon, as I have a lot of big plans for this podcast in 2021 and beyond, and I can't do it without your support. Until next time, get your vaccine, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.